Um, well, we're in Laodicea, and uh, I, I, I really desire to torture you by playing my favorite song about Laodicea, um, but I wouldn't do that to you. Um, but that was uh, Steve Camp uh, back in the 80s wrote a song, because now we're living in Laodicea, and the light that once burned bright slowly grown dim. So anyway, it's a great song, uh, but it's from the 80s, and, uh, and, and uh, I didn't do it to you. Uh, but Laodicea, this is the last of seven churches, and, and I don't know, how is, just for my curiosity, and I promise we won't take too long tonight, but for my own curiosity, um, how has this series on the churches affected you or your thinking or anything uh, in your life? I know that's, a, that's kind of, it sounds like a big, deep question, and some people are kind of scared to share, but if you can share something, I'd appreciate it. Can a lot of people say amen to that? Because yeah, I think that was well said. Thank you. That's, that's, you said it better, and I was thinking it. Cause, uh, anybody else? Just anything particular or in general? I'm sipping slowly, so I won't make noise, and I don't burn my tongue off. Because I'll do that too. Anything else? Anybody else? It, it, it's been helpful to me, um, and, and as always, at the end of a series, I feel like I need to go back and start over and do it again. Uh, it, it's just so much in there. Um, uh, I, I, have, I am just beginning to learn, that, therefore I will not even say what the subject matter is, but another subject matter puts a whole new light on these churches. They are laid out geographically in a, in a peculiar way um, because there are other cities with churches in them, so why these? And, uh, and, and it points to things that God did and has done and possibly will do, but uh, that, that, that uh, you and I don't think about anymore. They did back then. And uh, so I don't know enough about it to speak intelligently about it, and I'll just confuse you and all that, so I'm not even going to get into it. But, uh, but just, just know that uh, God has done more uh, in, in nature and, and uh, in revealing himself and in the word than, than we have imagined. Um, I look forward to having an uncluttered, um, sin-free mind in heaven to understand what he was trying to tell us, and, uh, and I'm, according to where you are, I'm 63, so I can be really old or really young, according to where you sit, but, but uh, as I get older, I feel I know less and less and less, um, because I'm, the more you keep learning, um, uh, the, the more you realize, man, how could I have missed that? There's just simple things that I've missed in, for 40 years, and then you hear it, somebody explains it, or you hear it differently, you go, ah, of course, how did I miss that so long? So uh, I don't know about you, but uh, going back through this has given me a new excitement for the book of Revelation and, and to, see, to see it differently. Well, um, this is the, the last church listed in this particular grouping, uh, Laodicea. Um, out of all the names, that's the, the most easy or fun to say for me. Um, Laodicea, it kind of rolls off the tongue uh, very easily. And so uh, let me give you some of the background that's not in Scripture real quickly as we've been doing. Um, this, uh, this 
town or city sits on a convergence of three important roads. There are three very important roads that come together at Laodicea, and so it became a center of banking and industry because all these trade routes, there's three main roads that, that kind of hit there. And, and this city was so wealthy, um, it's illustrated commonly that there was a great earthquake occurred somewhere around 60, 61 AD. I don't know why they give a spread of two years. I don't know if they weren't sure or not, but uh, when it was. But Laodicea financed its own rebuilding where other towns had to you know, appeal to Roman government or get, get other help. Um, Laodicea was able just to, without any outside help, rebuild all their, all their buildings. Um, it was known for a beautiful black woolen cloth that was used in carpets and clothing. So they were known for this uh, a beautiful material. Um, and, and a lot of what we know about Laodicea plays into what Jesus says to them um, about, about the good and the bad. Um, actually, or about, the, uh, or about the bad that they had. Excuse me, let me um, give myself a little bump here. Okay, good. Um, they also, and here's the other thing, they had a medical school that was known uh, for a particular medicine they had, a powder that was used in an eye salve that uh, supposedly was very good for the eyes. And in Colossians 2.1, it, it seems that Paul had not been there I didn't go there by the time of the first time he went to jail. But then uh, later, uh, uh, in, in another place in Colossians, um, there's the hint in, in chapter 1 and verse 4 and 412 that, that this church was probably founded by Epaphras of Colossae, that uh, this guy went and founded that church. Paul knew about them because he wrote them a letter from Rome, which is the book of Colossians, uh, so he did know about them. And, uh, but, but this city, and this, this uh, plays into where I, what was going on spiritually that was negative, is they had no Roman oppression, they had no trouble from Jews, and they had no false teachers in their church. They, they had none of these problems. Other churches had that. Sorry. I'm so fearful of burning my tongue takes me forever just getting sipping. Um, you know, one of the greatest ways for, to, to, for the gospel to grow and to spread is persecution. And that, that's sad. We don't look for persecution. I was thinking about that just, I guess, this morning. Sometime recently, I believe, this morning. But anyway, I was just thinking about... Um, and we, and we ought to pray for the persecuted church. And the Bible tells us to pray for our leaders so that we can have peace. Um, and we've had peace toward Christianity or toward religion in this country for well, at least since 1776 or right after. Um, because there was no official government religion. There still is not. There's no established religion in North America. Um, so we're free to worship whoever we want. You can worship a golden squirrel or... Uh, you know, a, a walnut or, or Allah or, the, you know, our, uh, the true God, uh, Yahweh. Um, and, and so there was, but there was no Roman persecution. I, a lot of times if, if all you've ever heard is some preacher preaching about persecution in the Bible, you, may, you get the sense that it was widespread across the entire Roman Empire constantly. And it was, it was more intense in certain areas. And that's true in China today. 
There are areas of China you can go to, you wouldn't be persecuted, but there are many where you, where you are. It just depends on where you go there. Um, uh, so, th so they didn't have any of that, and they did not have um, any trouble from the Jews. There are Jewish people there, but the leaders are not angry at them, not upsetting them, and they had no false teachers in their church. Uh, everything was, was uh, straight up and down the way it should be. Sardis was was comparable to this, um, if you remember. But in Sardis, they didn't have that faithful core. Um, the difference from Sardis uh, is there's no mention here, I should say, of a faithful core. In Laodicea, there doesn't seem to be this, because Laodicea said, but some of you are still on track, so be strengthened, wake up that which is asleep, you know, or point of death and strengthen it. Here in Laodicea, he doesn't address any group that is right on track. So that's kind of unusual. So let's look at, at what Jesus says, how he introduces himself um, here in Laodicea. And that uh, begins in verse uh, 14. Okay. Are those lights as bright as they get? Okay, cool. Uh, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Um, so here we have a description of Jesus that, from his own mouth, and this has some great meaning. Um, the first thing he says is the words of the amen. Now, I put down there what that means. You know what amen means in general, right? Somebody tell me. Yeah, we would say, so be it, let it be true. I heard somebody say, because it, the truth is, is associated with it, which makes you wonder why some people say amen when they do. Um, I mean, so some people use it to mean like, yeah, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, it, it's not that. It's saying, yes, that is true or, or is true. And so Jesus is the amen. And so the way we can understand that, and we can look in Isaiah 65, 16, um, I didn't mark it, but we can all turn there if you want to. I, uh, Isaiah 65, 16. The sense of it is, is that Jesus is trustworthy. He's always true. 16, I mean, 65, 16 of Isaiah uh, says, So that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. He who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth. Because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from uh, my eyes. And so the Bible is telling us that God is always true. And he's always truthful. Um, what did, what did uh, Jesus, what did uh, Pilate ask Jesus? What is truth? And what did Jesus say? He didn't say anything because Pilate didn't give him a chance to. He asked the question and then turned away. He didn't wait, wait for the answer. John had already, Jesus had already given the answer back to the disciples of John 14, 6, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so if he had given Jesus time to answer, he would have said, I am the truth. Um, and, and so truth is, is not a thing. It's a person. Jesus is true. Um, we, we uh, as, as Southern Baptists, um, I don't know if, it's still written in the documents, but, but our, our, our ideas of what we believe, known as the Baptist Faith and Message, says 
The Bible is truth with no mixture of error. And then it, it, there was this big controversy, but we understand the Bible through the person of Jesus. Now, we had to quit saying that because um, what is a hallmark of every false teaching? There's a couple of them, but what is one of them that I'm thinking of because I'm talking about Jesus? Or the humanity of Christ. They deny one side or the other of Christ. They say something else, like Mormons believe he's Satan's brother. Um, he's the good kid and Satan's the bad kid. Um, they believe he evolved. Some people believe he evolved into that. Some people believe, like the Buddhists would believe, that he was some highly reincarnated um, enlightened person, all of these kinds of things, there's always an error. Jehovah Witnesses believe that he is, is Jehovah. He's not Jehovah, he's not God at all, um, that only Jehovah is God, and this is Jesus who gave us a good testimony. Mormons will say they're Christians, they believe in Christ, but um, their Christ is not the Christ of the Bible. So the Bible tells about Jesus, but we understand the Bible through Jesus, the person of Jesus. So we have to understand what the Bible says about him and how it defines who Jesus is as that, the man who lived uh, over 2,000 years ago now, um, but also who he is in all of Scripture. And from the beginning to the end of Scripture, we see the Trinity, we see Christ. And, and so Jesus comes to this church and says, I am the truth, I am the trustworthy one. He's not saying that I'm giving you the truth, he's saying I'm the one you can trust in. The Hebrew word expresses is... Yes, you're expressing truth. Um, and so I put it there. He is a God of truth, and he is faithful and trustworthy. Because they're not trusting in him. Laodicea is not putting their trust in him. They're putting their trust in themselves, um, as we'll, we'll see as it goes. Then he says that he is the faithful and true witness. Um, again, he is true, not in opposition to the false, but he is true in that he can be trusted to communicate truth. It, it, I, 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 I'm going to try to explain this. I hope I don't mess this up. A lot of times if you ask somebody, why do we say Jesus is God? They say because he could do miracles. But he didn't do his miracles as God. He did them as a man filled with the Holy Spirit, according to Scripture. He did everything he did by the power of the Holy Spirit. He said, I don't even... What I say, I don't even say on my own. It's the words the Father told me to say. So a better way to argue for the deity of Christ is if he is a man who is given the spirit without measure, and that's in uh, the Gospel of John. Is it chapter 1 or chapter 3? And if it's in chapter 1, there's a 3 in the verse, like 30-something or something like that. I can't remember. But the spirit is given without measure to him. So a spirit-filled man will not lie. And he said, I and the Father are one. So we know he was deity because he said he was, and he was a spirit-filled man. That's why we trust he's deity, because magicians could do magic, could do tricks, right? Remember Moses and the snake? Threw down a snake, and he said, oh, we can do that, threw down their snake. But then Moses' snake ate their snakes. <laughs> and then Moses picked it up and was a rod again, right? Um, they, they, could, they, could, they could do parlor tricks to, make, to fool people. Um, and so Satan always imitates the works of God. And that's why the Bible says try the spirits. We can't trust just what our eyes see, our ears hear. And we have to compare it against truth. And so a better way to, to know the deity of Christ is because he, was a, he is filled with the Holy Spirit without measure. And a spirit-filled man who's filled without measure will not lie. So when he claimed to be God, he was telling the truth. 
He's the faithful and true one. Okay? Now, what does it mean for him to have the spirit without measure? That's a, I think that was in the King James. I'm not sure exactly how it says it in the ESV, but you may say it the same way. But what, 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 what is different about Jesus then than about us? That's true. But as a man, Jesus is also man. How, as a man, was he different than us? Yes, he's without sin. When, when we talk about being filled with the Spirit, what has to happen for the Spirit to fill us? What does the Spirit fill? I think you started to say it, I interrupted. What's that? Yes. He fills the space we give him to fill. To be filled with the Spirit, you first have to be emptied of sin and self and everything else. You, the Spirit will fill whatever room you get, leave him to fill. Um, there's this illustration of somebody, they take a, like a glass bucket or something, and they put big rocks, they ask, they bring the kid up, whatever, and say, all right, fill this bucket up with the big rocks. They fill up, says, the bucket full. You know, the kid goes, yeah, it's full. I can't put any more in it. But then he brings up another kid with some smaller rocks and says, okay, fill the bucket with those. He fits them around the big rock. It's a bucket full. Yes, it's full. Wait a minute. Bring up another kid with sand. Fill the bucket with sand. The sand goes down to all the cracks. Is the bucket now full? Yes, it is. Wait a minute. Take water and pour it in. You know, and so the Spirit fills the room we give Him. And if we leave our life clogged up, and because of sin, the Holy Spirit can't flow through us. You ever uh, turned on your hose and gone the other end and nothing's coming out? And you look back and it's cranked, you know? I don't know about you, but I'm lazy. I'm not going to walk back. I'll just flip it and do that number two and straighten out the crank and then, poof, and then I'm holding it the wrong way and I spray myself, right? Um, uh, so, so we get a clog in that pipe that, that God wants to move through us and that sin limits. And it's, I hate saying it that way, but God limits himself to what we allow him to do. And so if we allow sin in our life, he goes, okay, fine. You'd rather have that than me, take it. God will let you have sin in your life. He'll convict you of it. He'll try to tell you about it. But if you won't listen, okay, you get less of me if you're going to hold on to that. It, you know, it, it's, well, we could illustrate that a lot of ways, but it's holding on to a lesser thing. And thank you, Mary. Um, I didn't get to say that because I just happened last week. Mary, I've been in Sunday school with Mary and, and Cameron there. And um, last week in Sunday school, she quoted the first line of a of a hymn rise up O men of God have done with lesser things I'm 63 I've been in church all my life sung that hymn I don't know how many times always thought it meant the apostles they didn't have tv they didn't have books they didn't have radio they didn't have you know now today computers all that stuff and so they did the work of God with lesser things they didn't have what we have no <laughs> And in the early 1900s, when that was written, a gentleman would not say, stop that. He'd say, have done with that. And so, rise up, O men of God, be done with the lesser things. Get rid of that. She said it, and I, I, told, I said to her, something about Mary's voice when she says something, I hear it better. I don't know what it is. I, I kind of jokingly say that because there's been a couple of things she said. I went, oh, yeah, that's good. And she said that, and it just hit me. Hey, you misunderstood that. That's what I'm talking about. Those men of God of old just put aside all the lesser things to know God. 
Jesus, having no sin, has no clog in the pipe. He doesn't have to, he's already emptied himself. And I always like to say of the independent exercise of deity. Because he was never less than God, but he was never more than man when he was in his body on earth. Where is that body he was in now? Yeah, seated at the right hand of God. That's important to realize. What, let me ask you this. What did the Ark of the Covenant represent? And by represent, I mean, what was it a copy of? It was a copy of something. Yeah, you're right. There's the mercy seat. You remember the temple, the tabernacle, then the temple were replicas of what God let Moses see in heaven, which the next two chapters here in chapters four and five, we get to see the throne room, the worship center in heaven. So God shows it to Moses, says, now copy that, build something like that there. So he builds all the things that were there have a counterpart in heaven. And the Ark of the Covenant is the mercy seat. And there's two angels guarding it. And what does Peter tell us? What did Jesus do when he died? I think it was Peter told us, maybe Paul, but Peter. He took his own blood and took it into heaven. And mer or it might be the book of Hebrews, so we don't know who wrote it. And mercy seated it. Life is in the blood, right? Can God actually die? So when Jesus' body died, did his blood die? Well, no, because it's the blood of God. Because the Father gives you the blood, not the mother. So his blood can't die. So the blood that dripped off of his body in that cross, he gathered up, carried it to heaven, and put it on the mercy seat. He mercy seated that blood. And so on the real mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant was a copy of it. There's, there are actual angels with six wings guarding it. And the blood of Christ is there. And so when we, when we ask, when we go to God and confess our sin, it is covered by that blood that is on the mercy seat. The word that you've read in the Bible, and you've always heard people try to explain it, is that whole thing is known as propitiation. I had to say it slowly just to say it right. And that's what that means, mercy seated. He took his own blood, took his own blood and put it on the mercy seat. Because the priest would go into the Holy of Holies in the temple, right? Take in that lamb, cut its throat, drain its blood into a bowl, carry that blood into there, take a branch of hyssop and sprinkle the blood of a lamb on the mercy seat. And Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and goats and lambs did not cleanse our conscience from year to year to year to year. If it, if it had, they wouldn't have to keep doing it over and over. But Jesus dying once for all, his blood even cleanses our conscience from our sin. And so, he is the faithful and true witness. Well, that was a lot from that, wasn't it? I kept rolling there, sorry. Uh, we, we kept running that, that rabbit. And then, the beginning of God's creation. Um, and and, and my, my text, I've, uh, I've, I'm probably copying, I, I should usually go back and fix it. I don't think I fixed this. Um, the beginning, no, that's right. The beginning of God's creation, I did fix it. Um, what does it mean that he is the beginning of God's creation? Yes, it, yeah. Right, yeah, I give you all the answers on the paper there. I just want to see if you all pay attention. Um, I believe it's Colossians 1. Colossians and Ephesians are simple, similar. But I believe it's Colossians 1 uh, or somewhere in there. It says that he is the firstborn from the dead, the firstborn of creation. And, and so that's one of the errors people make because they don't 
understand or, or, or read out the whole thing and, and interpret it. There are laws of interpretation. You can't, just because you use the word doesn't mean that word in that context means the same thing. Just like I said, be done with, with that. Well, if I told a kid to be done right now, it'd be mean, hurry up, finish it up, right? But in the 1900s, it meant stop, stop doing it. So it can mean first, but the true meaning uh, is the, or yeah, there is Colossians 115. I've got it written down for you. Is the origin or the source of creation. Um, the progenitor is a word we would say. He is the one who created it or made it. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. That's in Revelation. I, I got it at 117, 2.8, 21.6, 22.13. But have you thought in detail about what alpha and omega means? The beginning and the end? Is, are there other places in scripture that doesn't use that language but, but gives us that same meaning? Can you think of one? One is that he that began a good work in you will complete it till the day of Jesus Christ, right? Um, is Hebrews 13 in this? Hebrews 12, I mean? Nope, Hebrews 12 is a good one. That's one that, that you're familiar with, I'm sure. Once you see it, you'll go, oh yeah, I forgot about that one. Hebrews 12, 1. I can pretty well quote it in the King James, but let me read it so I don't mess it up. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, who is this surrounding a great cloud of witnesses? Who is that? It's chapter 11. Okay, he's named all these great saints. And, and, and whoever the human author of Hebrews is, is painting a scene that they would understand. And, and you'd understand it. I, I, I got to confess my sin while I was running in here at the last minute. Besides stopping to get coffee. I could have done if I hadn't done that. But um, as um, one of my favorite quarterbacks, they never show that team on TV because we live too close to Washington, D.C. So if the, if the uh, Redskins, whatever they call them these days, are playing... Um, you don't get to see it. He was playing, and it came down the last minute. I, can't, I didn't quit watching. Should have left, but I didn't. Um, so, so, but we can understand it in that sense. It's like you're walking into this Coliseum, or think about the Olympics and that that big track, and in the and the stands are full, and the people are watching to watch this race here in, in Hebrews 12. And and as you look, there there's Abraham, and look, he's got his sons Isaac and Jacob with him, and Oh, there's Jacob's boys filling the next few pews. Look, over here is Matthew, and Mark's down here, and, and Mark and Luke are talking because they didn't get to be the uh, apostles, but they wrote two of the Gospels for us. And Oh, there's old John and Peter. They're having a good old conversation. Look at the prophets over here, Amos and Micah and Obadiah, and, and, and oh, the great Isaiah and Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. And over here is Moses and we, we can look around, it's filled. And I believe personally that it's more than just those guys. You know, it's my grandmother, Julia, it's my, uh, Julia Eaton, and my grandfather, John Stewart, uh, who, who was a devout, devout believer. It's my old nanny, Roni, who couldn't read because she wasn't allowed to learn to read, but would sit with a Bible in her lap, rocking in a chair, saying, God, you know I can't read your word that teach me how to live by what you say in this. And she would just meditate and pray with the Bible open in front of her. And Uncle Wilbur's there, my dad's there now, my mom's there. 
And we walk into that stadium. And there's a race. And we got to run this race. And, and I like to compare it to a football game. Because in a football game, uh, the reason I got hooked in, it was the Jaguars playing the Ravens. And the Jaguars were up by seven points with two minutes to go, and they kick it off, and Lawrence Taylor, Lawrence Taylor, um, gosh, can't get his name out now, Trevor Lawrence, marched his team down in two minutes and won the game with a two-point conversion. Unbelievable. Great ending. But you know what? In the stands, there was some guy at junior high. It came down to two minutes, and he fumbled the ball. And he let that get into his brain, and he just always, he, he let his defeat beat him. And so he's yelling, you can't do it. You'll never make it. But over here, here over here is this Hall of Fame quarterback, and he's yelling, go for it, son. Go for it. You can do it. You can make it. And that crowd is cheering us as we run that race. And so seeing we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run this race. Let's, lay, let's also lay aside every weight and the sin which, which clings so closely. And then let us run with endurance. And that is the word for patience. The race is set before us looking to Jesus. Because at the head of that crowd is Jesus. The author, the founder, and perfecter of our faith. He started it. We didn't start it on our own. We won't end it on our own. Remember what Paul wrote to the Galatians? You foolish Galatians. Who so convinced you that you began in faith you can finish in works? There's no way. You start in faith. You live in faith. You end with faith. And, and the reason we are saved is every day we express that faith. And so let us run with rate, uh, endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and to see at the right hand the throne of God. He went the distance. He went to the cross. He won the victory for us. And so Jesus is this beginning and the finisher of our faith, and the devil knows that. He is the source of creation, and that's John 1, 3. All things were made by him, 1 Corinthians 8, 6. So we get this picture of Jesus. He is, he is the truth. He is a true and faithful witness, and he is the one who began this good work in Laodicea. And then he says, I know your works. He didn't have anything good to say to this church. Laodicea gets no good points. Um, but he also doesn't fuss at them. He just paints a picture of where they are. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why at the end of that. Why do you, why do you think I'm going to say he doesn't, he doesn't condemn them either? There, no, in this church, there wasn't. I, I, I messed that up. In Sardis, there was, but here he doesn't mention a faithful core, so there's not even that. If he had condemned them, they would have no hope. 
It is up to them. And it, sometimes we stand and God says, okay, take pick. My, my, uh, the man I call the wisest man in the world that remains nameless, uh, Dr. Howard Burchett, he's also in my cloud now, um, and probably in many other people's cloud as well, uh, witnesses. He, one of the things he said is, always stand the man in the fork of the road. In counseling, um, when you counsel biblically, you don't say, well, tell me, you know, and well, let's try this or let's do that. You say, okay, there's a sin problem. All problems come from our sin. Let's, let's trace that back. Now let's repent of that sin. When we get down to the root of that sin, let's repent there because what you see is a shaking of a leaf out here. We try to fix alcoholism by fixing alcoholism. You want. There's a reason somebody took the first drink, right? The first drink led to the second drink, led to the fifth drink, led to becoming a drunk. That's how sin works. That's how messed up life works. There was a root cause. It started because there was a great pain they didn't want to look at, so they did something to comfort themselves in their pain. And then eventually they were doing it because it was Tuesday. They didn't need pain. They just, it was another day. And it became a habit. Choice is lost by choice. And so, in, with, as a Christian, we understand God came to break that hold of sin on us. In fact, Romans 6.6 6 says that, that when we become that new creature in Christ, he breaks the chains of sin, so we shall no longer be slaves to sin. So if a Christian, though, can voluntarily go into slavery. Just because you're free, that means you will not walk back into slavery. And so a Christian can stumble and fall, but if he doesn't get up and get back on the path with the shepherd's help, he's got a, he's got a crook to help us get on the path, and he's got a, a, a rod to, to beat our enemy off of us, right? You know, in, in Psalm 23, your rod and your staff comfort me. God never uses, a, a shepherd will never use a rod for a sheep because a sheep is a delicate thing. You hit him with a rod, you're going to kill him. I mean, just one, oh, my, I, my dad used to, he told me when he was a kid, he, he would set rabbit traps going to school and then cleaning them out, coming back, and that's what they would eat. And, and, they, and he only went through sixth grade, so I don't know what they did when he didn't go back in seventh grade. But, um, but he just said you could pick up a rabbit by its ears and chop it in the back of the head and it'll die. It's just a delicate thing. You, you can't do that. Sheep, same way. So the, 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 the rod is for the enemies. It's for the wolf. It's for the bear. It's for the lion. The staff is the crook where he will rescue you, pull you off of the cliff, guide you in the way you should go. And so God's rod and staff, they comfort us. And as a Christian, if we go offline, he's going to take that staff to pull us back in. But if we resist and don't want to come back and fight that, we're going to hurt ourselves, right? And Proverbs 29.1 says, A man being often reproved hardens his neck, will suddenly be cut off in that without remedy. So God gives us an opportunity to repent. That's what he's doing for Laodicea. He doesn't say, that, ah, too bad, you're going, you're, you're done for. Neither does he say, doing a good job. He says, you got a problem, and you better repent. And if you ever have God tell you, you better repent, you better repent. Go ahead and do that quickly and, 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 and firmly. And so, so, he says, I know your works, and they were a bland and nauseating people. Now, um, here's, here's the text. I know your works, you're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, um, this is the first illustration of their problem. And my, to my understanding, couldn't be wrong, but near Laodicea, there were two types of water. There was the, these hot healing springs, mineral springs that were hot, 
and there was also an aqueduct system and it brought in good, clean, cool water. Cool water refreshes, hot water can heal. They were neither. They blended the two. It wasn't good for drinking and it wasn't hot enough for healing. And he said, I wish you were one or the other. It's not that he said, I wish you were hot and not cold. He said, I wish you were, or I wish you were hot and on fire for God or, or cold so I could get you to repent. No, being refreshing, a cold drink of water is a good thing on a hot day, amen? Yeah, okay. So, so what he's telling them is you're neither. You, you're bland. You're nauseating lukewarmness. And so, um, and, and it may be uh, he, he is getting them to know because remember these are, these are people that are in this very relaxed state and very rich, rich city. We, we had another city. People are rich and so they kind of laid back. Laodicea the same way. And it would have been a social faux pas not to offer a hot or chilled beverage to their guests when they came in. Um, you know, just as we do. Somebody comes in, can I get you some water, coffee, tea, milk, you know, whatever you got in the, in the refrigerator or you can make real quick. But it may refer to this drinkability, this cool water, the warm springs that, that had to help. And he says, but because you are neither but are lukewarm, I will spew you out of my mouth, the King James says. Um, and and uh, let me see. Um, Because you're lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. The word there is vomit, okay? And it's an ugly word, but I like to use the word that it means. God says, you make me sick to my stomach, I'm throw up. I'm throw you up. Um, and uh, you don't have to be a person of extreme. Uh, and, and, I, and, and in fact, it's easier to go to a consistent extreme than remain in the center of biblical tension. But... At the same time, we ought to be, this, this points to 100% dedication to God. I wish you were just, you know, God uses people that bring refreshment to people. He uses people that help bring the little bit of heat and warm us up to help us go. But be one or the other. Do something, but don't be, well. I, I remember in high school, there was, there was a cartoon, and the guidance counselor was asking the kid, would you call yourself a leader or a follower? He said, neither, I'm a spectator. And that's what he's talking about, is these spectators. Lead, follow. I like the sign, lead, follow, or get out of the way. Do, do, one, do one or the other. And, and so he's, he's saying to these people, you're useless to me. God cannot use our niceness. He can only use our God-led ministry. And so he says, I'll spew you out of my mouth. Lukewarmness does cause vomiting. But verses 18 through 20 offer hope of repentance. Laodicea is not beyond help. And then in, in order of these verses, he goes on to say, For I, you say I am rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing. And again, this is, this is what's going on in that city. They trusted in their riches. They boasted in their perceived self-reliance. And their outward prosperity can lead to self-deception. Um, I think, yeah, it was. It was just at the, uh, 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 the homecoming. Uh, Pete and I went to the, to the homecoming, I guess that was a week ago tomorrow? So that, that short a time ago? Uh, yeah. Time flies when you have fun. Two weeks ago. Yeah, two weeks ago. And that preacher, uh, uh, he, he said something. Uh, like this. He asked all those preachers there, because, you know, it's a lot of us, a lot of pastors are in that room. And he said, uh, 
and I think it was the preacher, it could have been, no, it was actually uh, Dr. Lawless that said it. He said, one of the problems we have is we can do this, we can do ministry, quote unquote, in our own strength because we've been educated, we've gotten formulas and, and procedures and techniques, and we can do this without ever consulting God about it. And it's a danger for, for pastors and ministers of the gospel to begin to work in their own power because you become lukewarm. You're, you're, not, you're not doing what God told you to do, you're doing what you were taught to do. And, that, and that's different. Um, and these people are boasting in what they thought they were okay. They had their own self-reliance. But success, worldly success, is a false picture of, of what's really going on. I know you, probably very few of you in here are nerd like me. Um, but uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, and you've heard, you've heard of The Lord of the Rings because they made them into movies and all that. But J.R.R. Tolkien, you may not know, was a theologian. He was a great man of God. He uh, helped interpret uh, the Bible. I forget which copy of it he helped interpret. Um, as a kid, what he and his friends liked to do was make up languages. That's how, that's how his brain worked, okay? Um, and in The Lord of the Rings, uh, he said he didn't write it to be a, a, um, some kind of idea about the gospel and the Bible, but he couldn't help it because that's who he is. So most of it, it, throughout that story are pictures that we see in the scripture. And one of them, and one of the big pictures is there was this human man who's supposed to be the king of this great race of men. But that, that kingship has been gone for, for centuries. But he is the last descendant of the great king. And he's supposed to come back and take rule. And his name is Elrond in the, in the uh, not Elrond, um, Aragorn in the, in the story. And a poem was written about him by the elves. And it said this, all that is gold does not glitter. And just think about that for a second. That's the first line of the poem. All that is gold does not glitter. You know, we, we have the saying, all that glitters is not gold, right? And Tolkien turned that phrase around and said, all that's gold doesn't glitter. Here is gold wrapped up in a human body. And unless you knew what to look for, you wouldn't realize that he was a descendant of the great king. That's how Jesus came to us. He wrapped up deity in a human, a baby in a manger. That's what I was trying to drive at today. We, we leave Jesus in the manger too often. He came to start. Okay, I'll do movie references all night tonight. Where are you going, William? How many saw Braveheart, the movie, you know, the great William Wallace? Where are you going now, William? To pick a fight. <laughs> and uh, he said, well, at least we didn't get dressed up for nothing, you know. Uh, just to me, I was like, man, that, that ought to be in church. That, that's, that's church words right there. Uh, Jesus came to pick a fight with the devil, and, and you know, and, and that's a, of course, that's a gross and, and, and sufficient way of saying it, but it helps us get our mind wrapped around it. Our outward prosperity, if we got money, we're going, we got people coming, we, oh man, you must be right. You're getting hundreds of people uh, are coming to your church. So? That is not an indication that we're right. It's an indication we're popular. Especially in our... What happened to the crowds that followed Jesus? He turned around and said, Oh, y'all want to follow me? Take up your cross. Follow me. And they went, 
Oh, we didn't come for a cross. We came for the lunch. And they went home. And so much so, they turned to the disciples and said, are you going away too? And Peter said, where will we go? You have the words of eternal life. He said, all right, if you, then saddle up. You know, he said, saddle up, buttercup. It's going to be a tough ride from here out. We're going, we're going for the gold now. And they stayed with him to the cross. So, he says, and you don't know that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Now, if you were here and I preached on being poor in spirit, that's what they forgot. That, those words are almost the exact words, aren't they? He says, um, you say I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing, not realizing you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And then he says, so I counsel you to buy for me, um, I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments that you may robe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Now, it's, it's, it's quite obvious you cannot buy the grace of God, right? So what did the prophet say in the Old Testament? It's, it's um, the Italian prophet Malachi, or that might be Malachi, I'm not sure, but anyway. He said, hey, come to the, come to the fountain. You can buy without, free of charge, you can buy the water, the grain, what you need. So he is, it is not, not possible by a spiritual blessing, and there's scripture for it. And the true riches in gold are riches refined by fire that will not tarnish. It's so purified that it will not tarnish. And the Bible talks about streets of gold in heaven that they're transparent. They're so pure they're transparent. I'm not sure what that means other than there's no, there's no uh, uh, anything mixed with that. White garments to clothe you. Remember the black wool? He says, well, I got some white garments, white is a symbol of righteousness and uh, to cover their nakedness with garments of purity and sincerity. Um, Sab to anoint your eyes as you can see, which I seem to need tonight. Um, it seems to refer to their trust in that medical school. And then the balance seen here in verses 17 and 18 are obvious. Uh, that's what a commentator said. I put it in there to remind me to just stop. It says, you say I am rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by the fire. Not realizing you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So you need to buy clothes and you need to have the salve that you can see. And so we see this contrast that Jesus is making there. And then those whom I love, I reprove and chasten. And that's, we started over there in Hebrews 12, verse 6. Talks about the chastening of the Lord. Um, he says, those whom I love are reproved and disciplined, so be zealous and repent. He gives them the cure. Did I put my, no I didn't. Let me, let me read to you Hebrews 12, 6, just in case you never heard this verse. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens every son whom he's received. And in fact, in that text it says, if you've never had the chastening of the Lord, you don't belong to him. You get out of line, God will whoop you, Okay. I don't know about y'all's parents, but I'm old enough to have parents that they didn't talk twice. I don't think I ever got told to do something twice in my life. And I didn't tell my kids twice. First time I told them, and the first time when they were old enough to get it, and they got a little correction, not, nothing to hurt them, just a shock of, why'd you do that? I said, because I told you to do something, you didn't do it. Never had to tell them twice again. God don't speak twice. He told us. He's telling them to repent. They better do it. 
And, and, but I want you to notice his attitude toward the church is not punitive, it's corrective. There are people that beat their children, and they ought to be beaten. But there is a correction that may take a little pain to get people's attention. And, and, and the correction of the Lord can hurt, but it never breaks us. It never tears us apart. It is always corrective and, and gets us on the... And he says, be zealous and repent while there's still hope in verse 16. You can come to a place where there's no more hope. Um, how do you like those two words put together? Zealous, repent. What, how would you describe that? How, how does that translate out in your mind? What does it mean to be zealous? Let's just start there. Y'all get, get quiet because I talk too much. What's that? Okay, be quick, be hasty. Right. To be enthusiastic. Yeah, opposite of uh, to be lukewarm, right? So to be zealous in our repentance. I'll quote the wisest man in the world again. He said, uh, be careful of tears when people are repenting because the road to repentance is already slippery and it's made more so when it's wet. In other words, this isn't an, necessarily an emotional thing, but it better be a zealous thing. God, I know I need you. I am totally... That, I'm telling you, the Beatitudes blew my mind preaching through that. I am totally without hope. I'm totally helpless. I've got to have you. We're desperate for him. That, I, 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 that's how I understand this word zealous here as well, to be zealous, to be desperate for God. And then he says, but I'm standing at the door knocking. I'm right there. We, we use that a lot in, in evangelism. And then once I've restudied this, I thought, well, it is okay to use it in evangelism. But notice he's knocking on the church's door. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. This is a summoning of this complacent church to live a spiritual life. We live in a materialistic culture, don't we? We live in a culture that admires work and especially work that results in, has results, right? So if I work hard, then I become successful. And we brought that into the church. We can work hard and never be successful in the world's eyes, but be successful in God's eyes, because he measures it by faithfulness. Because God gives the results. Paul planted Apollos water, but God gave the increase, right? So there, there was a man... He was on the mission field for 40 years and never saw one person come to Christ. His son was named Paul, his last name Freed. And Paul Freed watched his dad's faithfulness, became a follower of Jesus Christ, and in his generation, wrapped the world with radio waves called Transworld Radio so that the gospel could be preached on every continent and the people in that continent could hear it on the radio. His, that guy's father was a devoted missionary for 40 years and never saw him like him before. Was he a loser in the world? No, of course not. Because God don't count like we count. Remember the stories of ten talents, five talents, two talents? Did, did you notice the two-talent guy? He said, well, you could at least put it in the bank. You knew this was going to happen. The ones who were successful risked the investment of their master. 
And so many times as churches, well, we may not, you know, if we do that, this may happen or that may happen. We get all nervous. We better not use God's resources that way. Why don't we just use God's resources the way he leads us to use them and let him tell us later, good job. Because we don't know the results of what we do, right? I think all of us will be shocked in heaven at something you said, something you did, and you just... You can die thinking you never did anything, but something you said somewhere led somebody to know Christ eventually. Uh, I, I use this illustration um, uh, of that idea. I've had a couple of those instances in my life, and they always blow my mind. But uh, last church I was in, we came to this place where we needed to hire a secretary. And uh, this young lady came in, and I knew her. I'd seen her before, I saw her around, and I'd met her before. And she was striking, and that's why she was hard to forget. She had, she had bright red hair, and I used to have bright red hair. Now I've got gray hair, but, but uh, it, was, it was thick and curly and long, and just, you know, you just would notice her. And, and I was like, hey, how are you doing? And she was married, had three kids, and she was a secretary in a church. And we, when she left, we said, well, they put golden handcuffs on her because she made more than the preachers made in our church, okay? And she was secretary. So we knew, like, she ain't coming to our church because we're not going to pay her like that. But she sat there, and she came in, and, and I just had known her, met her, seen her around, knew she went to this other church. Uh, and and, and uh, she said, you know, this is my spiritual home. And I said, what do you mean? Because she'd never been a member of our church anything she said do you remember when so-and-so got married I said yeah she said I was in that wedding I was at that wedding and she said when I walked in here I knew God was here and through that wedding service and 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 things that were said and done she said I realized I needed Christ and I became saved and this church is my spiritual home she never even come to church except for that wedding it was a wild you don't know what you do, how it's going to affect somebody. And so we ought to always be giving. And so Jesus stands at the door and says, if you just let me in, we can fix this, okay? Because it will become spiritual. Does God bless some men that, that are doing it right? And they do have, yes. I'm not saying numbers are an indication you're doing it wrong either. But they are not the indication you're doing it right. Because we can put on a dog and pony show every week and people will come. Problem with that is you've got to put on a bigger dog and pony show next week. And if the gospel's not good enough, nothing's good enough. Right? Again, the wisest man in the world, just stay standard. Satan told Jesus, jump off the pinnacle and float down. He said, no thanks, I'll take the stairs. I don't need, I don't need God to, I don't, God doesn't have to do a spectacular thing. I can just walk down the stairs. I'm not going to do it. And, and we, we've got to understand that, that we need to be spiritual not other things. And uh, boy, what a, what, a, what a commentary that God would tell your church, I'm on the outside knocking on the door. What would God say to Calvary? I'm not asking you to answer that question, but, but it's a good question to ask ourselves. What would God say to Calvary if, if, if he were here, would he be in here with us or would he be out there knocking on the door and say, you know, if you just open the door, I'll come in and fix this for you. We ought to invite him in, huh? Don't you think? We ought to do that every week. We ought to do that every day. Hey, come on in. I made a mess of it yesterday. Can you fix it? <laughs> sure, I got you. Tomorrow morning. You know, I made a mess of it yesterday. Because we, we, we're never going to do it 100% right. And he's got the, the, the way to fix that.
So he says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, this church had needs even if they are saved. They are saved. He didn't say they were lost, but they had needs. That's a great point to understand. And then think about this. I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. It's an invitation to a deeper intimacy. And um, this commentary that I told you I, I've been using a lot for this. Um, let me, let me uh, see. He said it so well, I was going to try to just say it. This promise given by Christ, if a man loves me, we will come into him and make our home with him. John 14, 23. A shared meal in the ancient Jewish world had far more significance than it has today. It was a symbol of affection, of confidence, of intimacy. Jesus was criticized. I've read this on Sunday morning the other week. Jesus was criticized by the Pharisees, not merely for associating with publicans and sinners, but because he ate with them. And that's Luke 15, too. Peter was criticized by the Jerusalem Christians, not for preaching the gospel to Gentiles, but for eating with him in Acts 11, 3. So the present verse contains a promise of the most intimate fellowship possible. I will come in and I'll have supper with you. He's, in, he's inviting himself in our life so that we can be intimate with him and we can know him. And then he says that those who do this, what happens? They sit with him on his throne. Now it's going to get crowded up there, isn't it? And we all did that. The one who conquers, I'll grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He has an ear to hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus is already on that throne. I ask that question, where is that body? The body of Christ that hung on the cross and was put in that tomb is seated at the right hand of God. Now that, that concept, that's the first time you ever thought of it that way. Hopefully that really gets a hold of you. At first I grew up in the church. I heard somebody say that way. You know, I never thought about that. That is, that's where he is. That's where that body that he lived in and did miracles in, it is seated at the right hand in heaven of the Father. That's how real heaven is. And he's already sitting there enthroned as Lord and King. And this promise is not restricted to the martyrs, but to those who stay faithful to the end. That's what a martyr did, right? That under threat of death did not deny Christ, but took it all the way. You may not ever have the opportunity to die for Christ in that dramatic way, but will you live your life faithful to the end? Um, if you'll excuse one other personal illustration, and I, I guess uh, those are the ones I got. My, my dad had Alzheimer's, and we call it Alzheimer's. You've heard me tell stories about my dad Got in a motorcycle wreck in 1949 when he was, when he was uh, 30 years old and uh, had 29, turned 30 a couple months later. And uh, I think it was February of the year. And uh, wrecked his Harley, big hog, not another Harley, but a hog, literal hog, ran inside of him. He said he's going 55 miles an hour, and if his friend hadn't been with him, he wouldn't have got hit by the hog because he was only going 55. He'd have been doing about 100 if he wouldn't have been to that spot in the road. But anyway, the hog hit him, threw him over the handlebars, wearing a, a, a cap, not a helmet, didn't have one, and, you know, made him unconscious for 30 days, semi-conscious for 30 more. Back then, they put you in a, hotel, in a hospital bed, and, well, let's see if he dies or wakes up. And 
And so he began to wake up 30 days later and, and completely woke up 60 days later. And, uh, and so my dad, uh, years later, I, whether it was that wreck or physical, just chemical, whatever, Alzheimer's, whatever it was, he began to, to lose it. And uh, that started happening in the early 80s. He didn't die until 94. Um, late 70s, early 80s, we, we could already tell he's deteriorating. And, uh, and, and so my dad got to, to where, um, you know, he's just sitting in a chair in the house. My mom took care of him his whole, until he died. And, and uh, my dad um, sat with his Bible in his lap. Because my dad had a habit, he told me as a little kid, that he read through his Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And when he got to Revelation, he'd read it from Revelation to Genesis. When he got to Genesis, he'd read it from Genesis to Revelation. And his whole Christian life, after he got out of that, woke up out of that wreck, he started that habit. He went to church consistently. He was a soul winner. He did whatever church needed doing that he could do. He did it. And he was faithful, even in his Alzheimer's. And two things about that. Um, an Alzheimer patient never looks up. We learned this because my dad escaped from the house one time, only one time to get away. And uh, guess where they found him? Found him in a church's parking lot. There was a steeple he could see in the distance, and he walked till he got to that church. And the secretary there happened to be driving a car just like their car. And my mom, early on, because he kept wanting to drive, and we knew he couldn't drive, and the doctor said, just take the ignition key away. It's when you had two keys. And just let him have the trunk key. And he was there with that key trying to put it in to get the door open. And the lady called the police, but my cousin was chief of police, so my mom had called him. They said, we know who he is, we got him. They came and got him, brought him home. So they put a lock above there. So, but he got it, when he escaped, he was going to a church where he's headed. And uh, around 19, I can give you the year, uh, around 92, 91, 92, somewhere in there, um, I was able to go to church with them in, at uh, Northwood Baptist Church in Charleston. My sister and brother-in-law still members there. And uh, it's where Janice went to church. I met her. And, um, and don't put an S on it, it's Northwood Baptist Church. And um, forgive me for saying it this way, but I like to say it this way just because it makes a point. Um, Y'all remember on Sunday morning service, you always had a special music, you know, it might be the choir, it might be a solo, or you might have a choir and a solo. Okay, well, the B team gets to do that on Sunday night, right? The, the ones that aren't quite that good, we let them sing on Sunday night. They're good, but they're just not quite that good. Uh, I, there wasn't a night they would let me sing, so I'm not, I'm not being judgmental at all. I just appreciate anybody using whatever gift God gave them to, to whatever extent they can use it. And this young man stood up, and he's going to sing a solo. And he sang on a hill far away, stood an old rugged cross. I'm sitting by my dad. My dad couldn't tell you my name, didn't know who I was. I could have been his brother, his dad at that moment. He didn't know where he was, where he was going, didn't know a thing. And he sang every last word of that song with that guy the last thing that ever left him and he probably never did was the knowledge of the Holy One he was faithful to the end and God invited him to sit on the throne with him. that's what it takes you don't have to be Billy Graham or Hudson Taylor you just got to be faithful 